we thank you for bringing us here, for getting us here safely. We ask that you would uh, pour out your spirit on us, Lord, that we would see uh, what you want us to see through your word, that you would uh, just speak to our hearts and, and challenge us, God, as we look at how you built your early church uh, and how you still want to use these uh, same tools today uh, to build your church. I pray, God, that we would do our part. We would fulfill our responsibility because we know that you're uh, fulfilling yours. So, Lord, please speak to us, God. We expect you to speak to us. That's why we come together to, to hear from you, Lord. So please uh, bless the service today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, last week, actually the last couple weeks, we were in Acts chapter 7. If you recall, uh, Stephen was appointed as essentially a deacon in Acts chapter 6, uh, and his ministry really took off. He's performing miracles, he's preaching in power, and that gained some unwanted attention from the religious leaders. So the religious leaders, specifically the high priest, confront Stephen. Stephen was accused of four things, if you remember. He was accused of committing blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the temple, and blasphemy against the law. So what Stephen does is he preaches this powerful sermon to basically walk the religious leaders through their ancestors' history to show that he's not the one that's committed blasphemy. They've rejected God from the beginning, and in rejecting his son, they have committed blasphemy. And he ends this powerful sermon. He says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. I don't encourage you to use that phrase of some he doesn't share, uh, doesn't receive the gospel. Stephen did it. It worked out for him. Well, maybe it didn't. He got stoned after that, right? And he was the first martyr in the early church. The church had experienced a level of persecution already. In Acts chapter 4, we see uh, Peter and John, they're arrested, they're threatened. Uh, and then in Acts chapter 5, uh, the apostles are imprisoned again, and this time they're beating. So the per- they're beaten. The persecution is increasing. Now, finally, in Acts chapter seven someone's killed for sharing the gospel so sharing the gospel isn't getting easier over time in fact it's getting much more difficult but we're going to see in Acts chapter 8 though this tragedy happened and this persecution is happening more and more often, becoming more and more severe. God is using all of this persecution to multiply His church. This is the title of the teaching. Persecution leads to multiplication. Persecution leads to multiplication. We see this theme throughout the entire book of Acts. We see it big time in this chapter, especially this section. If you would with me, it's Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, uh, Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Let's break this down, understand it a little bit better. When it says Saul was consenting to Stephen's death, it means he approved of Stephen's death. If you remember last week, we talked about um, 
the fact that some people believe that that Paul was basically the leader behind Stephen's martyrdom. Why? Because all the people laid their clothes, their garments at the feet of Paul, which could be an act of submission. We can't say that for sure, but we definitely can say that Paul was on board with Stephen being stoned to death to death. So this just causes more persecution in the church as it says here in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, at that time a great persecution arose against the church. We see Paul or Saul of Tarsus at this point was a big part of the persecution that was happening against the church. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. We also see it throughout the epistles. Paul talks about the persecution that he inflicted on the church. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, when he's giving his accolades, like this is what I've done as a Hebrew. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was blameless concerning the law. You know what else he says? I was zealous persecuting the church. I was so zealous about Judaism that when something came against my belief, I actually persecuted those people. So we see Saul of Tarsus was one of the primary leaders behind the persecution of the early church. But later on, he would deeply regret this. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, as Paul is building the case that the resurrection is a valid historical event. He says, hey, Jesus, he appeared to to Peter. He appeared to James, his brother that didn't believe in him. He appeared to over 500 people that are, most of them are still alive today. And he says, lastly, uh, Jesus appeared to me. And he calls himself the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. So this haunted him. The fact that he did, yes, he knew he was forgiven, but he can't take back what he did. The Lord forgives him of what he did, but he still remembers what he did. And we see the level of Paul's persecution against the church in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 11. It says, and I punished them often, okay? He's speaking about what he did against the church. I punished the church often. In every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He said he compelled them to commit blasphemy. He compelled some of these believers to recant their faith. Like, think about this. We're talking about Paul the Apostle. Before he was Paul the Apostle, he was not only throwing people in prison and having them uh, murdered, he was making people, basically physically forcing people to say, in other words, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. This is the level of persecution that Paul inflicted on the church. It's also important to note that the church right now is just in Jerusalem. It says the church which was at Jerusalem. The church started in Jerusalem. If you remember, it started in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. That's when the church was born. And it hasn't gone anywhere else other than Jerusalem. Why? Because the last thing Jesus told the apostles was what? Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He tells them that you shall receive 
power, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, where? In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We talked about how that's an outline of the book of Acts. We're going to see that second piece of the outline fulfilled here in Acts chapter 8. Now, the gospel is going to get spread, not just in Jerusalem, it's going to go outside of Jerusalem, the region of Judea, and specifically Samaria, just as the text says in Acts chapter 8, back in verse 1, it says, And they were all scattered. Why were they scattered? Because of the persecution. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, Jesus used the persecution to scatter the church, to get them out of their comfort zone. This Greek word for scatter, the specific one that's being used here, is the same word that's used for scattering seeds. For scattering seeds. You remember the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. The the sower didn't know what kind of ground the seeds were going to fall on. He was just scattering seeds everywhere. He didn't know who was going to receive the gospel and who wasn't. They were scattering the seeds. This is really the idea behind why God was scattering His church. He was scattering the church to spread the gospel. And this is point number one. Jesus scatters the church to spread the gospel. Jesus scatters the church to spread the gospel. So they're getting outside of Jerusalem. They're in Judea. They're in Samaria sharing the gospel. And this is often what the Lord still does to His church presently. He wants to scatter us to spread the gospel. He wants us to get out of our comfort zone. Why? Because the Great Commission was that the gospel would be preached to the entire world. Now that doesn't just mean going to a different continent or a different country and preaching the gospel. There's still people that are living in the world in running springs. The point of it is that God is sending us into the world, engaging with worldly people, unbelievers, to get the gospel message across. In fact, it was one of the Lord's personal prayers to his father in John chapter 17 in John chapter 17 verse 18 the night before the Lord died he prays this powerful prayer and in this prayer he says in verse 18 as you sent me into the world remember where did Jesus get sent from his heavenly abode in all his glory Okay, there's a comfortable place in this universe. It's in heaven. But God sent him into the world, a very uncomfortable place. And he says, I also have sent them into the world. I'm sending you into an uncomfortable place. I'm I'm, I'm sending you out of your comfort zone, out of what you're used to. Why? To engage with people, to share the gospel. See, the gospel's main objective isn't just to create christian communities christian community is absolutely wonderful but sometimes we can get stuck in this idea that yeah i have all my christian friends and yes there's accountability there and yes there's protection there and it's important to surround yourself with unbelievers but we can forget that we still have a job to do in this world god sent us into the world and it's so important for us to be open to this 
not even to just be open to it, but take initiative to, to go out into the world. It could be at the grocery store here. It could be at the gas station. It could be next time you're at Walmart, down the hill, anywhere and everywhere. The world is basically those that are in the world. Those that are unbelievers were called to engage with them. This is why Jesus scatters his church. And he used persecution for them to accomplish this task. Yes, it was an act of the enemy that had Stephen stoned, but God used this to get the gospel out there. Maybe God knew that if the persecution didn't happen, they'd just stay in their comfort zone in Jerusalem. Nothing bad's happening here. We're just sharing the gospel. Some people are getting saved. Some people are rejecting it. But it's not really bad. The Lord used the trials. He used the tribulation so that the people would step out in faith. The gospel was never meant to just stay in Jerusalem. The gospel was never meant to just stay in Running Springs. The gospel wasn't, it was never meant to just stay in our Christian community. The gospel was always meant to be preached to all the world, to every creature under the sun. As Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, Acts chapter 8, picking it up in verse 2. So the church scatters, we'll pick the, uh, we'll, I'll point to this uh, in a little bit here, except the apostles, okay, the original, um, really 11, uh, uh, are still there in Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. So it says devout men. It doesn't say believers, okay? This word devout men, it actually means God-fearers, okay? These likely weren't Christians yet. They were simply people in Jerusalem uh, worshiping the Lord. It could have been a feast. We don't know for sure. Uh, but they saw this whole thing happen. They heard Stephen preach in power. And then they watched Stephen get stoned and they didn't agree with it. So they buried Stephen. They gave him a proper, proper burial and they lamented over now this is important to note in that culture you weren't supposed to publicly mourn over someone that was given uh, capital punishment as a consequence if someone was accused of something for Stephen they were accusing him uh, accusing him of committing blasphemy but if if someone was accused of something that was worthy of being killed you weren't supposed to publicly mourn over that individual basically these devout men are saying I don't agree that he was uh, justly persecuted for the things that he said and the things that he did they were on Stephen's side in a sense so they lament they mourn which makes you wonder do they know where Stephen is right now what are they mourning but did they yeah death is a sad thing it's a sorrowful thing but have they heard the reality of what heaven has waiting for us. Do they know where Stephen actually is? That he's in the presence of God. That he's in paradise. That he's not in that dead body. That beaten body. That stone body. He's actually with the Lord. Why? To be absent from the body. Is to be present with the Lord. See. I'm sure. Something like this. Could have caused great confusion. Right? Even for the devout men. Even for the believers. This guy Stephen who was doing everything the Lord asked him to do. He's preaching in power. He's fulfilling the Great Commission. He has this tiny, short-lived ministry, and then all of a sudden, 
God takes him home? Why would God allow this to happen to one of his saints? Let me ask you something. If God wouldn't spare his son, then why would he spare his saints? See, he had a purpose in why he allowed Jesus to be, per, uh, to be persecuted, ultimately to be crucified. Crucified, the same holds true for his saints that he allows to be persecuted, that he allows to be martyred. There's a purpose, there's a reason for it. And God has so many different reasons. But just to name a couple, first of all, we have to remember that the same free will that was given to Stephen to open his mouth and share the gospel is the same free will that was given to the men that persecuted Stephen. God didn't stop them from persecuting Stephen. But as I mentioned, God still had a reason. He had a purpose in Stephen's martyrdom. Yes, it was spread the, to spread the church and to scatter the church and to get the gospel out there. But we also see this powerful impact that Stephen had on the people around him. These devout men are like, oh my gosh, this man was great. See, the Lord, when he allows believers, when he allows his sons and daughters to go through tragic circumstances, specifically persecution, there's always a reason. Look at how Stephen responds to this, right? He's being stoned. Like, I don't even know how he opens his mouth, but he's being stoned and he asks God, essentially, don't hold this sin against them. Don't hold it against them. He has a complete heart of forgiveness. He has love for his enemies by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a testimony for us to read about it. Think about those that saw it. And we know one that saw it, Saul of Tarsus. And we know that this would have some impact on Saul. At first, it looks like a negative impact. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Look at how Saul responds. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So this whole thing with Stephen being stoned, this just produced more anger. He says he was enraged in Acts chapter 26 as he's telling this story and the things that he was doing to the early church. I believe that Saul of Tarsus couldn't get this image out of his head, that he couldn't get the words of Stephen out of his head. So he went on a rampage causing havoc in the church. Why? To silence the truth, to silence what he saw, to silence the things that he heard. He couldn't bear the weight of it. What if I had an innocent man killed or I was in agreement or approved of this innocent man? What if he was right? There's no way I can accept what he said was true. So I'm going to prove the truth wrong. But the reality of it is, you can never prove the truth wrong. You can't prove the Bible wrong. You can't prove Jesus was wrong. You can't prove that he wasn't a man that died on a cross and resurrected from the dead. You can't prove the truth wrong. And if you try hard enough to prove the truth wrong, you know what happens? The truth ends up proving you wrong. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 9. On his road to kill more Christians, what happens? Jesus smacks them upside the head with the truth, right? He's trying to prove the truth wrong. It can't happen. It's absolutely impossible. He can't silence it as hard as he tries. The text continues. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
See that? They were scattered, but they didn't say they were afraid and they went and hid in caves or in cliffs or found some, some hideout and started an under, uh, underground church. Not that that's bad, that's commendable, but that's not what they did. They preached the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. And we see many people continued to get saved. Jesus used this trial in the church, this persecution to grow the church, just as Jesus uses trials in our life to grow us. This is point number two. Jesus uses trials to grow us in the gospel. Jesus uses trials to grow us in the gospel. That is the purpose of trials. Trials serve many purposes, but to sum it up, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect in the Greek, it means mature. The Lord is literally using trials to mature us, to build precious faith in us, precious character. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. There's something that God's producing through this trial, even if I can't see it. That's always the purpose of a trial. Whether it's we did something wrong and the Lord's disciplining us or we're doing something right and the Lord just wants us to do more and he's pruning us. The Lord is always trying to grow us through trials. Now, when I look at the most difficult seasons of my life, uh, the loss of loved ones, conflicts with people that are super close to me, moving, difficult scenarios, difficulty in ministry. I rarely ever enjoy those seasons, but I always enjoy when they're over. Why? Because I can look back and be like, wow, look what the Lord did through that. I wouldn't have this character quality that I have now. I wouldn't have this level of maturity had I not gone, gone through that specific trial or that specific season. And though I don't want to do it over again, I'm joyful in the outcome that came through that trial. I can testify that God does do something with trials because I've seen him do something with trials time and time again. There was one season um, of my life, uh, I don't know, three years ago maybe. <laughs> so each year when I enter into the new year, I always like ask the Lord, hey, uh, is there a word or a verse or, or something you want to get across to me uh, this year? This, this time it almost made me not want to do it anymore. He gave me Jeremiah chapter 18, basically verses 1 to 4, uh, uh, about the potter and the clay, right? And what happens? God tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house and uh, the potter is uh, making a, a, a clay pot uh, and it's coming up and he doesn't like the way that it looks so he mars it, he crushes it and he basically starts over because it wasn't becoming what it, he wanted it to become so he had to go through a painful process with the pot to make it what he intended it to be so I knew it wasn't going to be an easy season. I knew I was going to be crushed. I knew there was going to be some difficult things that came up. I didn't know how difficult, but sure enough, within weeks, madness, things just got crazy. Life was difficult. There were so many issues that were going on. 
And I remembered, hey, God gave me this word, but he also gave me another word. And this was so encouraging to me. In Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Now context. Remember, Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. He had a very difficult ministry during the Babylonian exile telling the people to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, but they kept rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, so they were basically making their punishment worse. So Nebuchadnezzar kept coming back and and taking more Israelites, all the good-looking, the smart, uh, the intelligent. He did it three times. And we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, they shall come with weeping, And with supplications, I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their soul shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. We got to remember when this was written. This was written literally when Nebuchadnezzar kept coming back and, and, and taking people from Israel. This was written in the time period that the temple was destroyed, that Jerusalem was destroyed. Imagine. Your friend Daniel, okay, your buddy that you hang out with all the time. One day you're hanging out with them. The next time there's a raid and Daniel's gone. Your best friend is just taken from you. Imagine what the people were walking through during this time period. And then God tells Jeremiah, this is the message I want you to give them. This season that you're walking through, though it's difficult, I'm going to turn your morning to joy. I'm still the good shepherd. I'm still your father. Though you don't see this right now, you don't see how I can use 70 years of trial to work together for good, I promise you it's going to happen. It's for your benefit that I walk you through this trial. And this is what the Lord gave to me during that season. And I didn't see that joy for, I don't know, six months down the road. But it was a promise I recognized. Okay, I'm going through this and I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to use all these different things. I'm going to turn your morning to joy. I'm still your father. I still love you. And all these things are happening to you because I love you. The church understands this. At least on some level. Why? Because they're being scattered and they know they're scattering. Isn't God saying, stop what you're doing? No, no. God is telling them, keep doing what you're doing, but do it over here. And the church continues to grow. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So we go from Stephen's ministry to Philip's ministry. Now, some scholars suggest 
that because they're focusing on the Greek, uh, the Hellenist leaders, basically, if you remember uh, Acts chapter 6, the people that they raised up, those deacons, uh, all had Greek names. We had the traditional Jewish believers and we had the Hellenists that kind of fell into the Greek customs. But they all became believers. They all became Christians. So there's a thought, could be true, kind of lines up, that it's the Hellenist believers that are really being persecuted and scattered because basically Stephen and the powerful sermon that he preached. More importantly than that, though, we see Philip. Who's Philip? This isn't Philip who was a disciple of Jesus. Okay, He's technically a disciple of Jesus, but this isn't like one of the original 12. Remember, Jesus had a disciple named Philip. This is the Philip that's referred to in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. That was appointed by the apostles to help serve tables and do some of the behind the scenes work. How do I know that? Well, for several reasons, but I told you we'd get back to here. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, The church scattered from Jerusalem except the apostles. Philip was an apostle, okay? This other Philip uh, wasn't one of the original apostles. So this is the deacon being referred to as in Acts chapter 6. We also know Philip as Philip the evangelist. He has the gift of evangelism. We'll see him come up later in the book of Acts. But what's awesome here is that Philip, he goes and preaches in Samaria the gospel. Again, this is where the door opens for the gospel to be presented to the Samaritans. Now, if you remember, in John chapter 4, Jesus went and ministered to the Samaritans, specifically one individual, right? He met this woman at the well that struggled with sexual immorality. She had many husbands or she treated many men like husbands. And Jesus has this powerful dialogue with her. And the fact that they even went through Samaria threw the disciples off. Why? Because Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. They were enemies of one another. See, back in the 700s, when the Assyrians, B.C., 700s B.C., when the Assyrians took over the northern tribes of Israel, they interbreeded with the Jews, okay? So the Samaritans is where we get the Samaritans from. They were considered half-breeds. They weren't full Jews, so they didn't, like, keep uh, the, the, the lineage of Abraham pure. They were impure, okay? They're partially from the lineage of Abraham, but they're also mixed up with these Assyrians, so they looked down upon them. They even had their own place of worship. They didn't worship in in Jerusalem. So these two groups of people, they do not get along. So Jesus goes through Samaria. Why? To break the socially accepted norms of the day. And Philip is picking up where Jesus left off. Because the gospel isn't bound to socially accepted norms. No. It's point number three. The gospel transcends culture. The gospel transcends culture. He's not afraid to go up to these people that are considered his enemies and tell them about Jesus. 
See, the gospel doesn't care about what our ethnic background is, doesn't care what our skin color is, doesn't care what country we're from or how we grew up, whether a Christian home or uh, an unbelieving home. Whatever the case may be, the gospel breaks down all those social barriers. And we have to recognize that as believers, that the gospel is bigger than the culture that we grew up in. It's much bigger than that. And it's so important for us to be a little more open-minded as we purpose to share the gospel with other people that may not see things the way we see things. What do I mean? Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are who are without law to the weak i became as weak that i might win the weak i have become all things to all men that i might by all means save some i'm being whatever i need to be to get the gospel out there i'll identify with the greeks i'll identify with the jews i'll identify with the romans I'll be whoever I need to be for that person to open up and respond to the gospel. Now, this isn't Paul saying, I'm fake to everyone so they hear the gospel. No, he's relating to people on their level and he's recognizing what Jesus shows us in John chapter 4. That the gospel isn't bound to certain cultures and certain social barriers that maybe prevent people from being friends shouldn't prevent people from sharing the gospel with each other and entering into that family of God. Have you shared the gospel with someone that grew up with a different culture than you? Maybe a different background, maybe a different ethnicity, maybe a different skin color. Maybe they speak a different language. You can look at that and be like, man, how am I going to share the gospel with someone that speaks a different language? And I know that's where some people get intimidated about going to different countries. and show, How can I share the gospel with someone that only speaks Spanish? Well, the answer is, unless the Lord gives you the gift of that tongue to speak to that individual, you basically typically have to lean on interpreters. There was a time when I was in Guatemala and we were going from house to house. And uh, sometimes it can be like, oh man, you know, I, I speak English. My If anyone was with me in El Salvador, you know that my Spanish is next to non-existent. Okay, um, it's a, I don't know why I've spent a lot of time in Spanish speaking countries, but it's just not good. I don't really speak Spanish at all. Uh, so I'm going with my friend Lorena from house to house, and we walk up to this guy, and basically he tells us he's an atheist. So we start talking to him, uh, and I don't know what he's saying exactly, but I'm using Lorena as an interpreter. And though this man spoke a different language than me, Lorena interpreted the things that I was saying, and this guy got saved. He accepted the Lord and his family did too, members of his family. And I could look at that situation beforehand and say, there's no way I'm going to get the gospel across to this guy that lives in a third world country. I didn't grow up how he grew up. We don't share a lot of the same uh, similarities across the world. How am I going to identify with this guy? 
Everybody needs the love of Jesus. Every single individual needs the love of Jesus. And the language of love through the gospel is the greatest language there is. If we don't step out, get out of our comfort zone, be willing to share with people that are maybe a little different than us, then who knows what would happen. See, Philip, he wasn't afraid to do this. He did this and he saw so much fruit that came out of it. So many people believed. Let's look what happens. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. The people, they didn't just hear the gospel, they heeded the gospel. This is important. Point number four, don't just hear the gospel, heed the gospel. Don't just hear the gospel, heed the gospel. It's not enough to just hear the gospel. You've got to heed it. What does that mean, heed? Well, in the Greek, it's this word prosecco. And it means play, pay close attention to. To pay close attention to. Meaning, I'm engaging my mind because there's the expectation that I'm going to do something with what I'm hearing. I'm not just hearing the gospel. I'm heeding the gospel. This doesn't just connect to the first time we hear the gospel. This connects to every single time we hear the gospel. Anytime we hear the word of God, it's so crucial for us to take heed, to pay close attention to. Why? Well, the Bible warns us of what happens when we don't. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. says this, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The author of Hebrews is saying, if we're not taking heed to the things that we're hearing, we're setting ourselves up to drift away. If we're just hearing it and we're not heeding it, you might drift away. It's so important that we heed, that we pay close attention to, that we engage our minds. Where are you right now? Where are you? Obviously, you're here, right? You're in this room, but are you here? What do I mean? It's so easy for us to get distracted, okay? And I hesitate to use examples like this, uh, but it's a reality. Sometimes we'll be sitting in a sermon or doing our devotions or whatever the case may be, and we start thinking about everything but what we're hearing. But what we're reading, but what we're praying about, our mind wanders. We start thinking about, man, I have this huge project due at work. Man, the kids have these things going on, all these activities. How am I going to make the schedule work this week? Man, I'm so hungry. My stomach is growling. Man, I'm tired. I need to take a nap. And we can start get distract, getting distracted by all these different things. It's our responsibility to take heed. To say, you know, not giving in to the flesh. Not that any of those things that I mentioned were bad. But right now, it's time with me and Jesus. I need to focus on what He's trying to get across to me. This applies to the time that we spend in the Word during our devotion time during teachings, listening to podcasts, across the board. It doesn't take anything to hear something. It does take effort to heed something. This is where the Lord tells us to love Him with all of our mind. All of our mind. How do we love Him with all of our mind? We meditate on Him day and night. We take heed to the things that He's getting across to us. And you know what happens when we take heed? 
we start seeing these things that we weren't seeing before. Wow, that message that I heard, it's connecting to this circumstance that I find myself in. We're talking about sharing the gospel. Here's an open door to share the gospel. This trial that I'm walking through, this is exactly what I'm going through. The Lord's going to use this thing. Uh, My devotion life, I'm reading these things and because I'm paying attention, I'm not just reading to check it off my list, because I'm paying attention and trying to get something out of this, the Lord's setting me up for success today. Engaging our minds during our prayer life, during worship across the board, we begin to see, oh my gosh, God is at work in my life. Because guess what? God's always at work in our lives. He's always at work in our lives. But a lot of times we miss it because we're not taking heed. We're not paying attention to the things that he's trying to get across to us. Well, these people, these Samaritans, they were. They were paying attention. They weren't just hearing what Philip was saying. They were heeding what he was saying. Acts chapter 8. Verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. We see Philip, the work of one man. He might have had others from the church there, but the text is focusing on Philip. He's doing a lot of miracles. He's literally casting out demons. He's healing people that are physically sick. He's sharing the gospel and more importantly, healing people that are spiritually sick and the whole city rejoices. Imagine some guy comes into town. And he just starts laying hands on people and, and healing them of all their infirmities and sharing this message that you never heard before. You never heard about Jesus anymore or before. So he's confirming the message with the miracles. And these people have great joy. But the reason they're having great joy is not just because they're seeing miracles being done. They're taking heed to the gospel and they're believing in it. See, joy is a byproduct taking heed to the gospel. When we're paying attention to what God's speaking in our life, there's joy. Why? Because when we recognize that the God of this universe that created us speaks to us personally, that wants to get across, that, that's enough to have, even when it's hard things that he wants to say to us, there's enough to have joy there. Wow, God wants to speak to me personally? That's enough to give me joy. These people are rejoicing. Their friends are getting healed. God's speaking to them. They're hearing the good news through Philip. Acts chapter 8. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So we're introduced to Simon the sorcerer. Now, sorcery was associated with uh, occult magical practices. Okay, there's a couple different words used for sorcery in the Greek. Uh, often the word that's used is pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy from, uh, because uh, typically sorcerers, they took drugs uh, to basically, I guess, open their minds to the spiritual realm. That's not the word that's being used here. The word that's being used here is uh, like Simon's performing magic tricks. He's doing some like actual magic tricks, okay? Probably not taking bunnies out of hats. So it's probably something bigger than that, because the people are astonished. Now, the problem with Simon is not only 
the power by which he's performing these miracles because it's not the power of God. We'll get into that in a second. But he's telling everybody how great he is. Look what it says here. Acts chapter 8. He says, claiming that he was someone great. When someone claims how great they are, that's a huge red flag, right? That's the opposite of humility, okay? Someone's always talking about how great they are. Beware, be careful. That's not how the Lord operated. Even Jesus Christ himself, he wasn't talking about how great he was, even though he was God in the flesh. He always pointed back to the Father. In John chapter 7, we see just before the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' brothers are asking him, hey, why don't you make yourself known at the Feast of Tabernacles? Show your miracles. Preach your powerful messages. Don't you want people to acknowledge you? And Jesus said, hey, it's not my time yet. In other words, you guys don't even get what I'm about. And then he finally goes to the Feast of Tabernacles and look what he says. John chapter 7, verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus himself wasn't even seeking his own glory. He was seeking to glorify the Father. And Jesus is the way. Simon is not of the way. He's purposing to glorify himself. He's claiming how great he was. And he deceives the people in Acts chapter 8 so much so that the people think in verse 10, this man is the great power of God. He's doing this by the power of God. And it says they're taking heed to the things that he said. Okay, It's kind of like backwards. Like They started taking heed to the things Philip said uh, after Simon. We're kind of introduced to some things that happened behind the scenes. All right? So... They are taking heed at first to the things that Simon the sorcerer said. And who knows what this guy is teaching. There are many that suggest, and if you look at some of the early church writings, they refer to Simon the sorcerer as the father of the Gnostic heresies. Okay, The father of the Gnostic heresies. See, uh, Gnosticism was something that was very prevalent in the Lord's day, and it just got greater and greater and became uh, a belief that spread more and more, specifically the first and second century. Now, Gnosticism was essentially this, among other things. Um, it was... Uh, uh, basically the pursuit of knowledge to attain godliness. It was a very Greek thing. But basically what they believed was that uh, matter was pure evil. Anything that was in the material realm was pure evil. And anything that was in the spiritual realm was pure. So they had an issue. Jesus coming in the flesh, God coming in the flesh, he couldn't have came in the flesh. Why? Because they believed that matter in and of itself, is evil. So they spread these beliefs about that Jesus um, was basically like a phantom, like a spirit. He appeared to have a body, but he didn't really have a body. That's why in 1 John uh, chapter 1, uh, John is battling against that. He goes, no, 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 we've held him. We've touched him. We've seen him. We've heard him. He had a physical body. So this is the beliefs. Uh, these are the beliefs that were uh, running rampant. Again, the early church fathers uh, tell us, they point to Simon the sorcerer as one of the main people that are spreading these false beliefs. Okay. Simon the sorcerer, they believe that he is the great power of God. 
the people believed he was the great power of God, but he absolutely wasn't the great power of God. And this goes to show you how easily we can be fooled. How easily we can be fooled to thinking certain people are of God when they're not actually of God. They thought this guy was of God, but he wasn't of the Lord. And the Bible warns us about this time and time again as you had these false teachers entering the church. Paul tells us through Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that this was going to happen more and more often in the last days. And he says this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, he says, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. A form of godliness, it looks like something, but denying its power, because it's not rooted in something. It's all show and no fruit. There's no power because the things that they're doing and saying isn't rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit, nor does it line up with Scripture. This is so important for us to understand and to know it's so easy to get deceived. Now, this guy, Simon the Sorcerer, he was performing miracles. Okay, We don't know all the kinds of miracles that he was performing, but it was enough for people to say, wow, this guy is really doing the work of the Lord. We've got to be so cautious with that too. Just because something appears powerful doesn't mean that it's rooted in the power of God. In fact, Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist is going to do a lot of this stuff. He's going to perform a lot of miracles and deceive a lot of people, but it's not the power of God. This is one of my pages that it's on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, the context is the Antichrist and the Holy Spirit, uh, the restrainer departing. Uh, but I want to point to something. Um, verse 7. We'll pick up there. Second Thessalonians two seven, for the mystery of the lawlessness is of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, he's speaking of the antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see this? The Antichrist has power too. And John tells us in 1 John, there are a lot of little Antichrists that have already come. The big Antichrist is coming later. And he's going to perform all kinds of miracles. And he's going to deceive many. And there are still little antichrists that put on a show that try to persuade us to believe certain things that don't line up with Scripture. So how do we combat this? See, the people were taking heed to this. They were paying attention. It was, it was itching their ears. It sounded real good, but it didn't line up with the Word of God and it wasn't rooted in the Spirit of God. John tells us in 1 John to test the spirits. Not every spirit is of God. There are a lot of demonic spirits out there. There are wicked spirits. There are evil spirits. And the only way we can discern what spirit is from what and what spirit is from another what is by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us discernment. Wait, wait, wait. This is off. 
what this person is saying, it doesn't line up with Scripture. The character that they're communicating with, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. They're just trying to glorify themselves. They keep saying how good they are, and this is how we're able to discern these things. When someone is truly operating in the power of the Spirit and preaching the truth of God's Word versus deceiving the masses. So Simon the sorcerer, he's deceiving people. Until Philip comes on the scene. And then look what happens. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Many people saw the real power of God displayed through Philip preaching the gospel. Fifth and final point. The gospel is the true power of God. The gospel is the true power of God. You don't realize what false power is until you've tasted the real power of God and the life-changing power that the gospel brings. Paul talks about this in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. The people mistakenly thought that these magic tricks that Simon was performing was the power of God until they heard the gospel. They really know that's actually the power of God. That's what's true. Because of the impact that it makes, there's nothing more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sinners don't turn to saints from watching motivational speakers. The dead don't come to life from listening to great speakers. It's from the power of the gospel. The gospel literally brings the dead to life. It wakes people up. It transforms the hearts. And that's exactly what we see happening in this passage. These tricks aren't fooling the people anymore. They saw the truth of God's word and how it affected everyone who believed. Lastly, Acts chapter 8, verse 13, is where we'll close. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Even Simon the sorcerer recognized this is the real power of God. What I'm doing is nothing compared to what this guy is doing. The question will come, was Simon's faith genuine? Okay, We'll look at that next week. But the point of the passage is that God went to radical measures to get his church out of their comfort zone to share the gospel. He literally had to scatter them so that they would share the gospel. We can expect the Lord to go to radical measures in our lives personally to get us out there to share the gospel, to share the gospel with the world, to share the gospel with unbelievers. When we do, we get to see what Philip saw. Maybe not, I don't recommend you going on an exorcism you know, journey and trying to cast out demons, but we can all share the gospel. Not everybody has the gift of healing, and sometimes that gift is just for a specific setting. But we can all share the gospel. And when we do and we see the power that it yields to change lives, to transform lives, to give people abundant lives now and eternal life later, 
That's something worth being scattered over. I truly believe that God's body, the church, worldwide, when we get too comfortable in a specific setting, the Lord does do things to scatter us, to get us out there. Why? Because He is determined to fulfill the Great Commission through us, that the gospel will be preached to all the world. We can just walk in obedience and do what He's asking us to do or wait for Him to scatter us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for... uh, how you used Philip in such a mighty way and how encouraging uh, it is to us. (laughs) Lord, most of us (laughs) were likely saved a a lot longer (laughs) for a lot longer period of time than Philip was uh, during this text. The church was so young. It was so uh, new. It was born not that long ago uh, in Acts chapter 8, God. And yet he preached the gospel in power and he saw people come to you, recognize you, respond to you. Lord, I pray that we would take heed to the things that we heard today, that we would take heed to the things that you speak to us every day, Lord, and we would respond, God, that we would choose obedience and and, and just do the things that you're asking us to do. Lord, we thank you for calling We pray that we would answer the calling. In Jesus' name, amen.